Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Ainsley Martinez is an intern for Oklahoma Watch. She's been following up on State Question 781 and the state's plans to start funding mental health and drug addiction treatments in county jails. Ainsley, I know we already talked about the passage of State Questions 780 and 781, but maybe just briefly remind us what those ballot measures were about. Yeah, so in 2016, Oklahoma voters... Um, passed two ballot initiatives kind of going hand in hand. So the first one, State Question 780, uh, pertained to um, diversion measures in Oklahoma jails. Um, so they changed drug possessions and property property crimes to um, misdemeanors instead of felonies and kind of reduced the jail population that way. Um, the second measure kind of tied into the first one, 781 said that um, states would fund mental health funding and drug addiction treatment funding um, through the savings from um, decreasing the incarceration rate. Now, uh, the last time you were here on the podcast, you described some of the obstacles and dispersing that money to counties. What, what else have you learned? Yeah, so these last few weeks, I've really been able to dive into the intricacies of um, rehabilitative treatments in jails. And what I've learned is that there are some real disparities between urban counties and rural counties. So the key differences here are in these counties, um, there are some external obstacles that rural jails face, and um, there are also some external advantages that um, urban jails receive. So these external obstacles for rural jails are kind of like the general hospital closings that we've been seeing around um, rural Oklahoma, um, which has has lowered the amount of mental health providers in that area. Um, so by no fault of the rural county jails, there are just not enough places um, and providers in those high traffic areas. You mentioned that urban jails have some external advantages uh, that maybe rural jails don't have. What do you mean? Yeah, so what I mean by these external advantages is the um, urban jails kind of receive supplementary aid from uh, nonprofit organizations. So think things like TEAM or the Diversion Hub. Those programs really kind of step um with the jails and help their clients who are in jail. Um, judge Stoner or Kenneth Stoner, who is a drug court um, judge in Oklahoma County, said that urban jails and rural jails really face the same challenges with funding. Um, but the real advantage here is those outside organizations. Now, uh, considering those factors, rural hospital closings and most rural jails not receiving supplemental aid uh, from nonprofit services. How do those jails provide mental health and drug treatment to their inmates? Yeah, so both rural and urban jails do have a state partnership with um, Red Rock Behavioral Health Services. So um, Red Rock does provide mental health and drug addiction treatments. 
Um, they're just not as fleshed out and maybe comprehensive as some people would like with heavy, um, you know, wait times and short staff. And, you know, how big a problem is that? How many people in jails around the state are struggling with a, a mental illness or an addiction? Yeah. So through a state funded report, I mean, this is 2015, but I think this kind of remains accurate today. Um, nearly 70% of female offenders and 48% of male offenders in Oklahoma jails um, were diagnosed with a mental illness. Are, you know, are there any kind of solutions out there to, to some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a really systemic problem. I mean, that's what Damian Shade from Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform said. Um, so, I mean, these are big <clears throat> problems that don't really have easy solutions. Um, but some people have suggested, you know, partnering um, counties up who are, you know, doing, um, you know, kind of better off um, with weaker counties to kind of bridge that gap. All right. Do uh, any county officials that you talk to have uh, any plans or thoughts on what to do with some of that money? Yeah. So I talked to several counties and kind of asked them this question. Um, interestingly enough, the ones that actually had an answer were these bigger urban jails. So um, Damon Devereaux, the sheriff at Oklahoma, uh, or not Oklahoma, uh, Logan County Jail, um, said that he has some plans. There's a mental health module with the provider that they work with. Um, and they would either send more providers to the jails themselves to um, help inmates or um, get more outpatient beds for inmates to go to. All right. Well, thanks, Ainsley. Uh, you can read all of Ainsley's work on how State Question 781 money is being dispersed and uh, where the gaps are in that funding on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Yasmin Saadi is a summer intern at Oklahoma Watch. She recently attended this month's State Board of Education meeting and is here to tell us what she learned. Yasmin, what uh, what was decided at that meeting? Sure. Um, so at this month's meeting, board members reviewed and approved accreditations for school districts across the state. Um, however, they ruled to delay the consideration of accreditation for Tulsa Public Schools until next month. All right. What's the history behind Tulsa's accreditation status? That's been kind of messy. Right. So the board reviews school accreditation annually. And last year, board members downgraded Tulsa Public Schools accreditation to accredited with warning. Um, and this, this was because of an implicit bias training for teachers that they found to violate House Bill 1775. And that's something that bans the teaching of certain concepts of race and gender in Oklahoma public schools. And uh, and just for, for clarity, that wasn't something that was going on in the classroom, right? That was just some teacher training from an outside vendor? Right. It was solely for teachers. Okay. Now, uh, w what makes the accreditation question so important? So accreditation is important because it represents the quality and standards of education at a school. Um, there are five ranks from accreditation without deficiencies to a school being unaccredited. And if a school is not accredited, it is not recognized by the Board of Education and doesn't receive that state funding. All right. Now, 
I think uh, maybe a lot of people think of accreditation and, and they think that really that's meant to apply to academic standards, right? That somebody's uh, evaluating the school and make sure that students are learning what they should be learning at certain grade levels, that uh, the academics are solid and, and the students can progress. Uh, but there's a little more to it than that, right? That's not all they're looking at. Right. You're right. Um there is that section that is about academic performance, but part of accreditation is also looking at if teachers are submitting their reports on time, if administration um, is doing things in a timely manner. So it's kind of about following federal laws as well. All right. So uh, how does that play into uh, Tulsa's situation? The board's going to take another month to uh, think about Tulsa. Uh, public schools accreditation status. They're the largest school district in the state. Um, are they looking at, uh, you know, academic concerns or are they looking at other other issues there? They're looking at several issues. From what Ryan Walter said during the meeting, um, he said the board would go on a fact-finding mission. Um, and what his concerns centered around were a lack of transparency from Tulsa Public Schools in reporting their spending um, he specifically cited their diversity, equity, and inclusion reports um, and said that the board found issues when they were looking at those that were sent in. All right. Now, I saw the public comment portion of the meeting was two hours long. Did the uh, public have comments uh, to that extent about Tulsa's accreditation? They definitely did. And it was a very long public comment. Um there were parent concerns. One parent specifically, Ashley Daly, expressed her concerns um, about the uncertainty of the status of the school district. And she called on the board to provide help to the school district rather than keeping them in the dark. How did the board address public concerns? So the board tried to reassure the public that unless a school district is unaccredited, it will be able to function as normal, keep its doors open, and keep the same funding. Um, so they said parents should not be concerned about school doors closing for this school year. What else did they talk about at this meeting? Um, a big, Another big portion of the meeting was about de uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion spending reports. Um, and those were issued in April and um, they ruled that school districts had to report their spending on diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives to the board. And at last week's meeting, they ruled to create better standards for those reports. Um, and Ryan Walter said this was specifically because of Tulsa Public Schools and a lack of transparency they found there. All right. What happens next for Tulsa's school district? Yeah. So as I said, um, Ryan Piper, the executive director of accreditation, assured the board and parents that the district will remain funding and open as long as the school is accredited. Um, however, after the meeting, Ryan Walters told reporters that all options, including recommending that the school is not accredited, um, are on the table. So there is a bit of uncertainty. All right. Well, thanks, Yasmin. You can read uh, Yasmin's story about the uh, State Board of Education meeting this month, as well as all of her other work uh, from this summer on our website, oklahomawatch.org.
Whitney Bryan reports on vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch, and she's here to give us an update on Oklahoma's Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Now, before we jump into that update, Whitney, remind us what that coalition is and what it does. Well, the coalition is a nonprofit, and basically they funnel federal grant money to um, statewide shelters and crisis centers, basically supports for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. So they're sort of um, a coordinator almost of all of the state's facilities. All right. Now, last year you reported that uh, one of the former executive directors squandered hundreds of thousands of dollars of federal money. Remind us what happened there. Right. So federal auditors found a a lot of misspending. Initially, it was close to $900,000 that they um, squandered, essentially. This came out that the spending uh, was on things like vacations for the former director, Candida Mannion, as well as some board members. And of course, there were things like, you know, poor bookkeeping. Uh, they didn't have the records to support some of the spending, missing timesheets, again, uh, which doesn't support money spent on staff. And um, and even things like spending funds, you know, that were meant for a specific purpose on other things. There are a lot of rules around these federal grants that were broken. So the feds have been working with the nonprofit since then to try to rectify some of those costs. Now, uh, that's why you started following this coalition so closely over the past 18 months or so. What's happening with the coalition now? Well, last week in a special meeting, the coalition's board voted to dissolve the nonprofit. The feds had been providing grant money to the nonprofit since the audit had happened. You know, they basically kept funneling money into this nonprofit because the nonprofit hired all new board members and staff and and was working closely with the feds. Um, However, last week they found out, the board found out the feds froze the grant money, which basically left them with very little money in the coffers and they could only operate through the end of August. So the board felt they really didn't have a choice because, you know, they just essentially ran out of money. Now, uh, this coalition's been around for four decades. What does that dissolution mean for Oklahoma victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse? Well, that's the question that a lot of directors and staff at these shelters and crisis centers all over the state are asking right now. So we don't have a lot of answers. What we do know is that the nonprofit, they uh, train all of the advocates, the staff that work at these shelters and Um, crisis centers across the state with victims. And so uh, that's definitely going to be affected. And there are already uh, directors at these shelters who are trying to figure out how to, you know, get that training elsewhere. Um, It's the, the coalition is the only place in the state that does that. They also fund a lobbyist for the shelters and crisis centers who advocates at the Capitol for legislation that could, you know, protect Uh, victims of domestic violence and sexual assault lobbies against things that, you know, could harm them or, you know, make life a little bit more difficult for these folks. So those are the the top two things that I'm hearing from directors are are really a concern. Were you able to speak with any of the uh, people who run programs supported by the coalition? What they have to say? 
Yes. So I spoke to rural program directors in Ada and Ponca City last week. And, you know, in addition to those concerns about the services I just mentioned, they were really frustrated at how fast the dissolution happened and that the board didn't ask for any input from these programs. Uh, The board members were telling me that they made this decision very fast. They found out the grants were frozen on Monday. They had the vote on Wednesday. Um, So, you know, they're kind of saying there there wasn't a lot of time. These program directors were notified about 24 hours before that vote happened. Um, And these program directors around the state, they do meet once a month aside from the board, and they're already planning to discuss at their next meeting, you know, how they can bring that training back and fund a lobbyist and those types of things. Now, this isn't the first time something like this has happened at this coalition, right? That's right. Um, I learned recently in talking with federal agents who are who are auditing the coalition that uh, several years ago, they audited some grants from 2009 and uh, Marsha Smith, she was the director back then. They found some misspending in that case as well, though the number was much lower, about $30,000. And so in that situation, after years of audits and discussions with the feds in 2015, she repaid money while well, the coalition repaid the money to the feds, that $30,000. And in that case, we found a letter from the coalition that went with that check that said the programs, in other words, the shelters and the crisis centers, were the ones who had to front the money for that $30,000 payment. Now, uh, in this case, did did either of those two former executive directors or uh, any of the board members who were charged with overseeing the money uh, or may have benefited from some of that misspending? Did they face any consequences for any of this? They have not. No. Uh, I guess I I should say they were both fired, removed from their positions at the coalition. So in that sense, yes, they were fired from their jobs. Um, However, since the firing, there have been no uh, charges filed, you know, no other consequences for these two directors. Board members also removed from their positions um, on the board, but again, you know, no prosecutions or, or other consequences for folks who were overseeing this money. What happens next? Well, the directors, as I mentioned, of, of the shelters and crisis centers, they're going to meet on August 9th and they're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, there's been some discussion that the, they may be able to fund the lobbyists themselves. So I know they're going to be talking about that. And then, of course, training. Again, this is a big concern for the directors. So that's going to be top of mind. I think the biggest question they have and the the biggest concern really from the dissolution here is millions of federal grant dollars that can no longer come to the state of Oklahoma. These grants that the coalition was getting, you know, they are designed to go to state coalitions. Every state has one of these. So now Oklahoma is going to be missing out on those federal dollars. And as far as the directors can tell, there's no way around that. And as you mentioned, all the states have one of these coalitions. Will Oklahoma be the only one without one? It will. And it's unfortunate. Oklahoma has some of the highest rates of domestic violence in the country. We have the the second highest in the country 
rate of women killed by men, according to the Violence Policy Institute. And now Oklahoma will be the only state without a coalition. I should say Florida had a similar situation recently where their director also misspent some money. They did also shut down their coalition. However, they have restructured it, rebuilt it, and brought it back. So they do currently have a coalition. So that will make Oklahoma the only state in the country without one of these. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, all of Whitney's coverage on the problems at the Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.